Our God, we do thank You for opening our hearts to the gospel. Us who were enemies of the cross, us who sought our own fame and our own desires, thank You for that day that uh, Christ was enthroned and ourselves was dethroned. And Lord, we do pray for those that would be with us that have not come all the way to Christ, that uh, the gospel message would be clear, that the Spirit of God would be so kind to lead them to repentance and faith, that they would speak with one of us this morning after the message about what they must do to be saved. Meet with your children in the Psalms this morning. Teach us, like the psalmist, to give testimony of confident trust in our God. You are the sovereign one of the universe, and you are not only sovereign, but you are a good God who deals with their children as a father. Teach us to trust. Teach us to lean. We'll give you all the praise in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 16 this morning, and I think that we will probably be in another psalm next week, and then Pastor Joey will be back, and uh, we'll be continuing our journey in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapters 24 and 25 are coming up in the Olivet Discourse. We finished Titus, and so we're onward, should the Lord tarry with some great time in the Word of God. It's been said that no one is ready to live unless he is first ready to die. Only in facing the reality of death with a living faith in God, not just professing Him, but possessing Him by repentant faith, only then are you prepared to live boldly and courageously for Him, even in the face of troubling adversity in life. That is to say, having eternity settled helps in this life. To conquer the grave, man's greatest foe, is everything. What can man do to us? Usher us into the presence of the Lord? Yeah, that would be hard to take. In May 1995, Randy Reed, a 34-year-old construction worker, was welding on top of a nearly completed water tower outside Chicago. According to writer Melissa Ramsdell, Reed unhooked his safety gear to reach for some pipes when a metal cage slipped and bumped the scaffolding that he stood on. The scaffolding tipped, and Reed lost his balance. He fell 110 feet, landing face down on a pile of dirt, just missing rocks and construction debris. A fellow worker called 911, and when paramedics arrived, I don't think Mike was on the ambulance crew there, but they found Reed conscious, moving, and complaining of a sore back. Apparently, the fall didn't cost Reed his sense of humor. As paramedics carried him on a backboard to the ambulance, Reed had one request, don't drop me. Doctors later said Reed came away from the accident with just a bruised lung. Sometimes we resemble that construction worker. God protects us from harm in a 110-foot fall, but we're still nervous about three-foot heights. I think that David reminds us, as so many writers of Holy Scripture do in reminder, that God, the God who saved us from hell, the God who saved us from death, can protect us 
from smaller dangers that we face today, this week, and the weeks to come should Jesus tarry. What a great reminder. David faced one of many unknown trials. We, we don't know what it was, what kind of insurmountable odds. Psalm 16 was written in an unknown time, possibly faced threats to his life. And this psalm is a song of confident trust. He was able to live life to the fullest because he was gripped with a living hope in God beyond the grave. He was gripped by a resolute reliance on God in the face of death. And unless you and I have, have reckoned with death and have an absolute confidence in resurrection because of our union with Christ, what David writes cannot be true of you. So let me exhort you as I even prayed for us this morning that if you're without Christ this morning, settle that before you leave this church. We would love to introduce you to Him. That's what we're about as a church. The only thing we can't do when we get to heaven is introduce people to Jesus Christ and we'd have the great privilege to do that. So come to Him today before it's too late. I'm so grateful for different experience God's given many of us uh, of reckoning with death. You know, when you're wondering if the doctor's going to finally come out with the diagnosis of, yeah, here's what the disease is that you've been suffering with, and we can't offer you anything. Well, at least I know I'm headed to heaven. Amen? Even if, even if you are, are burning up in a ball of fire in a uh, uh, flames out in your backyard, you can be reminded, I'm headed to heaven. And there's great living hope and assurance for this life. Eternity's been settled. What can man do to us? Man's most dreadful thing of death has been taken care of. Would you follow along as I read for us Psalm 16? We're told that this is a miktam of David. There's uh, uh, no consensus as to what this refers to. We could uh, engage in sanctified speculation, but uh, we'll do that at another time. Psalm 16, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, in your presence is fullness of joys. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. What magnificent words on the inspired and inerrant 
and authoritative, authoritative and sufficient Word of God for the saints then and the saints today that we will study. Let me emphasize this differently. If you have come here this morning and you have turned from your sin and embraced Christ alone as your Savior, you as a Christian have taken a giant step in your Christian walk and growth when you can wholeheartedly say to the Lord, as the psalmist does in in verse 2, that I have no good apart from you. This psalm is a celebration of the joy of fellowship. I trust that you know that joy and that fellowship this morning. We are struck in verse 1 by an opening prayer, which is bolstered by two cycles of testimony throughout the rest of the psalm. So notice with me, first of all, in verse 1, his petition, and then we'll look at the cycles of testimonies throughout the rest of the psalm. Notice his petition. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Preserve. With quiet confidence, he began to pray, keep me safe, O God. In a way, he summarizes the entire psalm in this one verse. Rich thoughts as he looks above and around, and within, and beyond. If you ever take advantage of the sermon note section of your bulletin, maybe it would help you so that when you go to meditate on this psalm later on today, after your kids have brought you your afternoon coffee or something on Father's Day, but, uh, or, or later on when you study this psalm, to have this simple little outline. It's not the outline we're even going to use in the, is this exposition, but I thought it was helpful. In verses 1 and 2, he looks above... In verses 3 and 4, he looks all around. In verses 5 through 8, he looks within. And in verses 9 through 11, he looks beyond. But as he looks above, he starts right there looking above. He prays. And he petitions God for preservation. Now, for those of us at Newtown Bible Church, this is not a new truth for us to learn But it sure is the right reminder for us forgetful folks. Hard to learn. We know it, but it's hard to remember to put into practice when difficulties arise. And the basis for such a request is that God was his refuge. God was his refuge. He had put his trust exclusively in God. There was no plan B to pull out. There was only a plan A. Only God could protect David from the dangers in life. In fact, he uses the name of God, uh, El, here, the same term used as in El Shaddai. It is the title used of, of the supreme deity and indicates God's strength and God's power. So when we recognize who we are in difficulty in a fallen world where life is hard, life is tough, the weak An impotent man in humility must flee to the sovereign of the universe. That's nothing new, but a reminder we must have daily and regularly throughout our sojourn here in this life. Beloved, we need the constant reminders that we are not the ones in control. We might have life all scripted 
and God doesn't follow our script. It might things like, seem like things are going along just swimmingly, financially, or on the job, or health-wise, and all of a sudden, we face a hiccup in the life. Life is fleeting, it's frail, it can change in our heartbeat. And we must remember, we must do as the psalmist will do elsewhere. Lord, help us to number our days and apply our hearts to wisdom. Help us to learn from these events that it can change just like that. So we need to follow in the footsteps of faith that David gives us. David, who often looked to God in confident trust and asked for preservation. Matter of fact, he'll do it in the next psalm. Psalm, eight, psalm 17, 8. Notice what he, what he prays here. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Several psalms later, towards the end of the songbook of Israel, in Psalm 140, Psalm 140, verse 4, again he cries out, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to trip up my feet. I trust that you're praying uh, faithfully as we're waiting to hear, I think it's this month, as to what the Supreme Court's going to determine. Are you praying, Lord, would you preserve us, preserve your church, preserve me individually in the, in the family and on the job place as I seek to live in a pagan world for righteousness' sake? Lord, preserve me. Psalm 141.9, keep me from the jaws of the trap. What, what, great, what a great word picture. Keep me from the jaws of the trap which they have set for me and from the snares of those who do iniquity. This must become our practice. We must have a well-worn path to the Almighty. We must lose the testimony of our lives of how often we fail the test and fail to run to God and learn the lesson of running quickly to God as David does in this event of life. This single-mindedness is pointed to throughout the first six verses of Psalm 16 as you return back there with me. That of throwing in your lot with God in the realm of your security, verse 1, your associates, verse 3, or excuse me, your welfare, verse 2, your associates, verse 3, your worship, verse 4, and your ambitions, verse 5. God is the preeminent one in all of it. A single-minded devotion, a God-centered life. We must further our track record and learn the lessons well in difficulty, not to be double-minded. Remember, uh, James has some great wisdom for us in his first chapter. He, he says that we are constantly to be crying out to God for wisdom. James 1.5 If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. In other words, he doesn't scold us for asking. And what does he follow that thought up with? He says a double man is, is unstable in all his ways. Don't be double-minded. Say, God, I trust you, but let me figure this out. There is no plan B, as we said earlier. Are we single-minded in our hope and our confidence? We have a natural tendency 
to wonder, why this difficulty? I hate that about me. I hate that about my heart, and I trust you hate that about your heart. In essence, what we do is question the sovereign, exhaustive wisdom of a good God allowing those events. We hate it when things don't go according to our plan. But God, instead of it causing consternation, we ought to recognize God, God lets uh, pressure cooker moments to kind of speed up that maturity, learning that He is always good and He is always faithful to persevere us. And when we get on the other side, the other side of the difficulty where they're like, oh, stupid, you know, I, I knew this, I've known this, God's never failed. Verse 1 is the only prayer in this psalm, and David spends the rest of his words weaving together his personal testimonies of trust in the Lord. So he moves from prayer to testimonies. So verses 2 through 4, point 2, his, his testimony of communion. If you wanted to jot that thought down, let's, let's explore this. His testimony of communion. I said to the Lord... You are my Lord, I have no good besides you. And as for the saints who are in the earth, they're the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God, they'll be multiplied. Stop there for just a moment. Yes, we've got communion with the Lord. So often when we talk about uh, communion and fellowship, however, it's that horizontal aspect, not that vertical we're, as image bearers, we are relational creatures. If, since we're created in the image of God, there is that relational aspect to us being image bearers. This created neediness for others. But notice the, we're going to notice the perplexity here. As, as he looks around, he tells of his affection for all the lovers of God. Fellowship and seeking God together is not just a new covenant reality. It's something the Old Testament saints enjoyed as well. Notice where his delight was. He delighted in fellowship that he experienced with fellow believers, the saints and the excellent ones, or uh, the, as the NASB uh, translates that, the majestic ones. Have you ever thought about what a, what a great gift God has given you in placing you in His body and in the church, the gift that the church is in your own sanctification and your belongingness and in working out your spiritual giftedness. A preacher was once asked, what is, what is it that has uh, kept your church from becoming all the church it could be for Christ, ignorance or apathy? His reply was a terse, I don't know and I don't care. Unfortunately, behind the humor lurks a tragic reality. I think that far too many believers either do not know or they don't understand the importance of the local church. There is not that priority on the Lord's day and communion with the saints and service with the saints and come to the Lord's table with the saints. And even worse, too many don't care. Too many don't care. 
But that was not true of David with his fellowship with the saints. He said, this is where my delight is. He had a deep love for the godly citizens of Israel. Now, not all Israel was Israel. You know, there, were, there were a lot of unbelievers in the people of the promise. The nation was very much pagan. Not all were saints by faith. But those that were fellow worshipers, that was his greatest joy. With the saints, the holy ones, literally, as the New Testament would even uh, use the same uh, term. Often this word saints is used in the Old Testament of heavenly beings, but we know that this is earthly beings that are having a vibrant and living faith in, in Yahweh because of the phrase in the land or on the earth, clarifying phrase. But these are the, these are the Hasidim, the righteous ones, the loyal or godly ones, as in uh, verse number 10. You won't allow your holy one, your holy ones, your righteous ones. God's people aren't perfect. We can put our hands up and give a hearty amen to that. We're not perfect. The church is not a perfect people. But we should delight in their fellowship and not in the fellowship of the world's crowd. The world needs our witness, not our love. John cautions in his first epistle about uh, a healthy love for the world. They don't understand. They serve a different master. They have a different love. There's a divine disconnect with the world. David sure does testify to this. He says, I got a special love and delight for the saints who are on the earth, the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. And as he continues his look around, he doesn't just observe the saints. He tells of his aversion to all who worship any other. If you are not worshiping the one true God, there's this stark contrast. The ungodly who run after other gods in religious syncretism. That would, and, and that pursuit, that vain pursuit, would only increase their sorrows. As compromisers, they weaken their loyalty to God. They are idolaters. So whereas his delight was with the saints, his disdain was as he detested the character of the ungodly. Back in the previous psalm, Psalm 15, notice verse 4. He says, as we look upon those that don't know Christ, that hate Christ, in their eyes a, a reprobate is despised, who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. You know, the, the blessed man, the righteous man, is one who doesn't walk in the world's counsel. Notice what he, uh, this added caveat he gives in verse 4. He, he talks about uh, those that are not followers of Yahweh. He said, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. Life's hard enough living this side of Genesis 3 in a fallen world. And unbelievers know nothing but multiplied sorrows. Sorrows being multiplied ought to sound familiar to us. Reminiscent of familiar words back in Genesis 3, 16. 
the words spoken to Eve where God said, I, I will multiply that sorrow. You've chosen disobedience and distrust. You questioned my integrity. You trust my, distrusted my goodness. And that is what will multiply sorrow. These could hardly be a more ominous allusion to what follows from apostasy. Pain, sorrow, emptiness, if that is your God. As a family for our evening devotions, we're reading through Ecclesiastes right now. What a, what a great reminder for not only anybody, but especially young people. To be reminded, if you pursue anything but following the one true God, you will multiply sorrows and vanities and emptiness, such as life under the sun. Life doesn't make sense. There is no purpose if you're not serving God for His glory. So the psalmist gives a testimony here of communion, that it's existent and delight with the saints and non-existent and in opposition to those of the world. But how about this secondary uh, testimony he gives in verses 5 through the following, his testimony of confidence. Verses 5 through 8, he gives us kind of the, the past and present dimensions of it, and then in verses 9 through 11, it's present and future dimensions. So let, let's think down through this, this last section here. He looked around him. Now he's, he's looking within and he buries himself like a bee in the flower in pure delights of communion with the Lord. He doesn't find satisfaction within himself, but in the object who is continually his lot, his God. Notice what he says about this relationship in this one. He said, he is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You're my portion, you're my inheritance. The thought of God himself is David's heritage and its voice so eloquently. Anytime we've got people to come alongside us and help us contemplate the greatness of God, whether it be Maurice Roberts in his book, Thought of God, or J.I. Packer's Knowing God, or, any, or Isaiah the prophet in, in chapters 40 through 48, or Job at the end, the last four chapters of his book, extolling the greatness of God, enlarging our understanding of Him, the one who is our portion, the one who is our inheritance. When the psalmist exclaim, you are my portion, you are my inheritance, that ought to conjure up a memory in the Old Testament for us. Do you remember as, as God was divvying up His blessings? In Numbers chapter 18, what He says to the Levites, He gave the priests no block, he gave the priests no territory to call their own, no, no place or house to say, hey, this is, this, is, this is my plot of real estate. But what he did say to them, his assurance to them is that I am your portion, I am your inheritance, 
David and every singer of the psalm can meditate on the riches and reality of a God-entranced vision, that God is the center of life, God is to be the center of our affections, and we have not matured in our walk with God until we see increasing desires and increasing love for His greatness to be extolled. I think that Paul got it. Paul matured at this point when he writes to the Philippians of his true reward, his true joy, his portion and inheritance. In Philippians 1, remember in one verse, he sums up his whole aim in life. Philippians 1.21, for me to live, Christ, to die is gain. He says it differently in the third chapter of this little epistle to the Philippians. When he looks at life before Christ and all that used to be his passion and his longing and where his treasure used to be, He says, uh, you know, when I, when I looked at my, circ- I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. And all that people without Christ would look at prestige and prominence and what really matters, he tells us in Philippians 3.7, whatever these things were gained to me at that point, those I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I am suffered, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. Suffer? Giving up this and that is nothing because I've gained Christ. He's my portion. He's my inheritance. Augustine penned how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves. O Lord my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation." said so eloquently by one of the early church fathers, summarizing this same truth that the psalmist has arrived at. Lord, you're my portion. You're my inheritance. I've got you. I've got everything. So the Lord Himself and all the divine blessings He brings with Him, overflowing in goodness and provision. So in verses 5 and 6 here, he, he ex- David expresses his total trust in the Lord as he seeks not just God's gifts, but God Himself. Not all the goodies. And some of the particular blessings that the heritage of God brings are spelled out in the next verses. To have Him is to enjoy guidance, which He gets at in verse number 7. God counsels me. To, to seek God's approval and to seek God Himself is to have stability, verse 8. What does it mean to have God as your inheritance and your portion is to 
no resurrection confidence, verses 9 and following. And to wrap up the whole psalm in verse 11, it's to know endless bliss to have God as your inheritance. You have to think about that first one, that first example he gives of God, my inheritance, my heritage. He says, here's why I bless the Lord. He counseled me, verse 7. A bless the Lord whose counsel be indeed my mind instructs me in the night. God gives wisdom if you'll ask Him. We'd already referred to uh, James's uh, command here in James 1.5. If you lack wisdom, just go to God. Ask Him for it. He can teach you in life's darkest moments what we could never learn when life is going along just swimmingly on the mountaintops. Do we trust Him to counsel us? This speaks of the Lord's guidance. In verses 7 and 8 here where he's, he's pronouncing blessing on the Lord. It says in verse 8, I've set the Lord continually before me because He's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. You remember the new covenant reality that Jesus taught on, this similar truth? Where Jesus summarizes in, in Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things, all the earthly concerns, the things that we have necessity for, he'll, he'll take care of it. What a great reminder. No new truth, but a precious reminder in our sojourn here in life as the Lord counsels us. Matter of fact, verse 8 is a familiar verse to many Jewish people today, most Jewish homes. I remember testing fire alarms in Southern California where uh, we'd see, I'd be in different Jewish homes, and, and there's a Shavita plaque on the wall. The word Shavita means I have set. To set this before you, we could only wish that they'd know as well and be convinced of the following truths of Messiah that follow here in this psalm. This is a place of undivided focus, exclusive preeminence, so David would not be shaken by any danger. Drum up the worst storm that could come along. I won't be shaken. God was unmovable and so was he, so that the closer he drew to his God, the less he was double-minded and shaken by the issues of life. This refers to stability in the psalmist's life regardless of circumstance in which he'd find ourselves. Circumstances come and go. They change constantly. But this is the one in whom it, if there's any goodness, it's God's doing. James tells us in James 1.17, every good gift is from God, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shifting shadow. This is the changeless one, the immovable mover. The unshakable one that we draw near to. He says, I won't be shaken. I've set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. Why was God at David's right hand? Because David was at God's right hand. This suggests a person standing beside another. Whether it be courtroom or battle, they're there for you. Matter of fact, to, to unpack this uh, principle a little bit further, he, as he, he looks at the, the past and present dimensions of God's portion in his life and his inheritance of God in his life, he starts looking at future dimensions in the remaining verses. 
looking beyond. He's given assurance of immortal life. This is one of the few Old Testament passages dealing with resurrection. We, can, we could spend time in Psalm 49.15 or Isaiah 26.19 or Daniel 12.2. But this very passage here in Psalm 16 is applied by the Apostle Peter in his teaching at Pentecost to the resurrection of Messiah in his argument that was hard to refute. Matter of fact, if, if we could take just a, just a moment, turn it with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and remember how Paul would use the future reality of resurrection for present comfort and confidence and pressing on. Oftentimes, we will read 1 Corinthians 15 on Resurrection Sunday and Sometimes we forget the, the impact of the resurrection for present life. But Paul used it in his argument in, in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember what he, what he said towards the end of his argument? He, he talks in the earlier parts of 1 Corinthians 15 about Jesus has, has resurrected the witnesses that, that he calls to bear. He, he says he appeared to Cephas, to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brethren. He appeared to James. Paul gives his own testimony. He said he appeared to me. But if he's not raised, why are we preaching? Why do we go to church? Why do we conduct Christianity? Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most pitied. If there is no resurrection, there's nothing. Sleep in on Sunday. Keep your money to build a better house and to take care of the tuckered out car. Don't give it to the Lord. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He is the prototype, the first one to be resurrected from the dead, to lead others in resurrection life at the end of the age. So, uh, a resurrected Messiah is what gives us our hope. Peter picks up on this in his first epistle, 1 Peter 1.3. Remember what he says there? According to His mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or if I could refer back to Acts 2 again, where, where Peter used it in his sermon on Pentecost. When Peter refers back to this text that we are studying this morning, he quotes the Greek Septuagint, a prophecy of the Messiah for whom alone such words would be perfectly and literally true. Because why? David's going to the grave eventually. David's flesh will eventually succumb to corruption and decay. David's words transcended his own experience and became historically true and most literally fulfilled in Christ. So when David testifies in verse 10 of Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One, capital letters there, to the un undergo decay, the translators here cluing us in that this is a grander reality than David who would get to the grave 
Yes, he would come up out of the grave eventually, but it would only be Christ. So God is the psalmist's portion in life and his deliverer in death. Good question for us this morning to contemplate. Is this your confidence, beloved, as you sit here this morning? The resurrection, deliverance from the realm of the dead, Sheol. Peter indicates in his sermon in Acts 2 that David understood the reference. Paul tied it to the covenant with David in second, uh, the covenant that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7. God would not abandon David or God's promised seed in the grave. What a great reminder. God doesn't give up on His friends. Those who have been brought near to Him by faith, who have been made His saints. You know, as I was meditating on this this week, we, uh, I was thinking about how we're going to uh, you know, decorate in the house, and some of you may have hanging on your wall that, that portrait uh, taken along a uh, seaside footprints where it's got that poem that recollects that uh, he starts off life's journey where there's two set of footprints and when life is hard, there's, there's one set of footprints and he's wondering, Lord, did you abandon me? No, that's the time that God carried him. David reminds us here, Lord, you're my portion You are my inheritance, not only in eternity, but because of what will take place, what will be for all of eternity, that has bearing and import into my life today. Again, this this picture of right hand, he says in verse, verse 11, you'll make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joys. It's in the plural in the uh, in the Hebrew here, so uh, uh, it's, it's multiplied joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Because the Lord was at David's right hand, verse 8, he would one day be at the Lord's right hand here in verse 11 in the Lord's eternal presence and pleasures. This path of life that we call life would ultimately lead to God's presence in heaven where he'd experience an overflowing, undiminished joy. But the import David's bringing to our mind here is that because of where we will be, the hope of then brings us hope into life's events, which David was experiencing when he prayed to God to preserve him As he took refuge in him, Lord, help the hope of resurrection be a reality in my life in ever-increasing faithfulness throughout my sojourn. So in summary, David's got good fellowship, verses 3 and 4. He's got a good heritage, verses 5 and 6. He's got good counsel from the Lord, verses 7 and 8. And good hope, verses 9 through 11. Life in this world typically is going to end without warning. God's not going to clue us into when the end date's going to be. Once in a while, we've got the privilege of 
you know, somebody get, gets sent home from the hospital, they get put on hospitals, okay, the doctor says, my best estimated guess, you got days or weeks or whatever, and so you can kind of plan for that. It doesn't happen that way for most of us. It's going to end without warning. Death rarely sends its advance notice. So the scriptural imperative is for every saint of God to live every moment of every day as if it were our last. I would reiterate what I said at the very beginning of this morning's exposition. As Richard Baxter once said, always preach as a dying man to dying men as if never to preach again. We don't know if today is the day that Jesus is returning for His church. We don't know if today is your last day or my last day. But only in living as dying men will believers live as God intends. Believers fix their hope in God, the only safe refuge from the deadly dangers which threaten the righteous. It's all around us. We're oblivious how many accidents God prevents us from on 84 or teen driving. Oh, excuse me, I got some of those. Uh, We're oblivious. And we just go swimmingly on our way like we're in charge. But with a completed canon, after the progress of revelation, we have the full doctrine of resurrection. And it gives us confidence that when we do die, when our last second here on earth is over, our last breath is taken, that God won't allow death to destroy this full fellowship that we've been fanning the flames of in our corporate worship together, in our private worship, in our fellowship with the Lord. It's just going to continue on. Now, I, like you, don't necessarily like the means that some of us have to go through to get there. It might be a painful death or losing our faculties. Well, if it's already gone, I guess I don't have much more to lose. But uh, God won't allow death to destroy that fellowship that we enjoy with Him as our portion, our inheritance, our cup. When we lay down this life of flesh and sin, the tent that Paul says is growing faint, we're going to be able to have this fellowship up to the most intense way where we lay down our sinful bodies and we can worship Him unhindered. All is made possible because Christ conquered death. He rose to become the first fruits of all who sleep, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 that we read. So let's learn at the feet of David this day to to set the Lord before you, continually meditating upon His rock-solid character. That if you can trust Him for your eternity, can you and I not trust Him for our today? That's hard a reality that we need to learn to progress in in our maturing into Christ-likeness. Only with our focus aggressively riveted on Him will He become your delight. Constantly remembering that He's he's brought us to the path of life, not the path of death, as the psalmist writes it. You've made known to me the path which is real living. It's not the emptiness which the preacher writes about in Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun without God, which makes no sense. It has no purpose. It has no value. 
constantly remembering He's brought us to life and He alone can bring joy and eternal pleasures. I trust Psalm 16 will give you more of a God-satisfied vision that you could boldly exclaim, even as the Puritan Thomas Brooks said, hope can see heaven through the thickest clouds. Let's learn to see it more clearly today than we've ever seen it. Would you pray with me? Our God, we close in prayer, offering your own words back to you. Ask and as the psalmist that you would keep us safe and keep us faithful. You, we confess, are our Lord. Teach us obedience. We would be remiss not to pause and thank you for your blessings. Your multiplied joys that have been poured into our lives through Christ, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavens poured out upon us who believe. We praise you for your counsel that Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our paths. Give us the humility and the teachability to dig in, to study the Word, to be diligent, to know Your truth, to know the very mind of Christ as it was recorded in Scripture. Father, thank You for being with us. Thank You for strengthening us, equipping us for the journey ahead should You tarry. And we would ask that You would Help us on this path of life and give us insurmountable joy until you usher us into the fullness of your presence in eternity. Count us faithful, we ask in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.